Exodus 20 at verse 16. Once again, this is God's holy word. Take care how we hear it, brothers and sisters. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. Let's all pray. Holy Father, like our Lord Jesus prayed ages ago, your word is truth. Sanctify us in your truth. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray that you would wield your word, which is truth, in all our hearts and lives. That King Jesus may have the glory and that the kingdom of Satan might be toppled and Christ alone would reign as Lord in all our hearts, even as Jesus reigns where the sun doth its successive journeys run. Do this thing, O Lord. We ask it in his name. Amen. We've noted before with so many of the other commandments, sinful human nature is to excuse away any sense of obligation to a command or to suggest our, our general obedience to a command, at least by way of comparison relative to others. I've never shot anyone, so I'm pretty good on the sixth commandment. I've never seduced anyone, so I'm pretty good on the seventh commandment. First commandment, well... It's a little restrictive in today's pluralistic society, don't you think? But the ninth, yeah, we say. I admit I've been dishonest. I've told a few lies before, but, but who hasn't? It was just a little white lie. And yet at the same time, for as many people who admit to violating this ninth commandment, there's also, this also seems to be the command that everyone seems to insist on as the one that ought to be mandatory. The dissonance that we, that we humans have in this area is fascinating. For example, according to one study, 84% of people consider honesty to be an important characteristic of brands. So in dealing with shopping, with consumer products, 84% say honesty is important. Among young people, when asked what matters most in choosing a friend, a good sense of humor was the most important factor with 82% of the votes, while honesty came in second at 67%. Kindness was the third characteristic prioritized by young students at 61%. When asked about the government and politics, a survey of 6,500 people in the United Kingdom asked whether they would prefer a future prime minister to be honest or to deliver their preferred policies. 71% of respondents chose honesty as being more important. When asked about the characteristics that all politicians should have, honesty was ranked as the most valuable personality trait. When asked whether healthy democracy required politicians to consistently follow the rules, 75% of respondents agreed that it did. So that's interesting. People believe that truth-telling matters for government and civic life when it comes to spending your hard-earned money on particular products and brands and for friendships. Honesty matters in these realms of life, noble ideals. Oh, but how fickle we are in the execution of our ideals. According to a recent study co-conducted by the universities of Wisconsin and Alabama, 75% of Americans consider themselves to be generally honest people. However, in a study of 116,366 lies told by 632 participants over 91 consecutive days, here's some interesting things. 
An average person lies one to two times a day. 60% of people lie at least once in a 10-minute conversation. Men lie six times a day on average, while women lie three times a day on average. 40% of people lie on their resumes. 90% of people lie on their dating profiles. 50% of teenagers admit to lying to their parents about their whereabouts. People are 67% more likely to lie over the phone than face-to-face. 72% of lies are what we might call white lies, things said to spare the emotions of somebody else. Did you like the fruitcake that I made you? Oh, yes, yes, enjoy that fruitcake very much. 64% of people admit to lying about their accomplishments. Most people lie an average of four times a day, yielding 1,460 lies per person per year. 40% of lies are meant to get out of trouble. 80% are done to spare somebody else's feelings. 11% of lies are in an effort to protect someone else. 5% of lies are told for no apparent reason at all. And 70% of liars would do it again. Apparently, only one lie in seven gets exposed. But it can be costly. $50 billion a year in identity fraud alone adds up in America. But it can be personally ruinous as well. We can all think of the stories. It was just a few years ago when Brian Williams, the celebrated chief news anchor at NBC Nightly News, the successor to Tom Brokaw, top of his career, Williams claimed that while reporting in Iraq in 2003, he was riding on a helicopter which was fired at and needed to undergo an emergency landing. However, soldiers on board disputed Williams' claims. Elsewhere, Williams was quoted later apologizing for misremembering the events that took place. We've noted the troubled state of so many marriages, both in the church and in the culture. Surely the Ninth Commandment has something to do with that. 57% of men admit to infidelity in a past or a current relationship, 54% of women. And it turns out that 70% of the lies that are spoken are spoken to what one survey calls romantic partners or family members. 70% of the lies you will tell to your boyfriend, girlfriend, or spouse. Even in the quaint old days of the early 1990s, this was already seen as a growing problem in our culture. In the context of lies being touted in the Clinton-Bush presidential election, columnist Peter Gray, writing for Time magazine, put it like this. The injunction against bearing false witness, branded in stone and brought down by Moses from the mountaintop, has always provoked ambivalent, conflicting emotions. On the one hand, nearly everyone condemns lying. On the other hand... Nearly everyone does it nearly every day, close quote. And yet, despite society's ambivalence toward lies and the truth, when we look at the summary of God's moral law here in Exodus 20, it's clear that verbal integrity matters. Look at the commandments. Look at all of them if you want. You can see the the sin addressed in the ninth commandment, as one commentator pointed out, is actually addressed in slightly different ways in both tables of the law. The ninth commandment fundamentally speaks to the issue of truth-telling and verbal integrity and the godly use of our words. But back in the first table of the law, the third commandment has to do with sins of speech, remember? In that case, it was pertaining to the name of God. The third commandment speaks of honoring his name and it forbids the misuse of his name. It forbids invoking God's name in dishonorable or blasphemous or deceptive ways. And actually, as we studied a few weeks ago, considering the sixth commandment, the prohibition against murder, 
We thought of how wicked thoughts and words are included in that prohibition. Malicious musings of the heart or tongue that are on a trajectory toward murder. And so twice over, perhaps more if we thought about the various applications of the Decalogue, but at least once in the first table of the law and second and again in the second table of the law, God addresses the way we use our tongues. In a day when lies and deception and dishonesty are ubiquitous, when truth is at a premium, I wonder if we might start to feel something of the weightiness of the significance of truth and what the ninth commandment is pressing upon us. We might be tempted to downplay the severity of a ninth commandment violation built as it is, assuming the virtue of truth and truth-telling as perhaps less, less egregious than other violations. Yes, yes, lying is wrong, but it's not as awful as murder. It's not as odious as, to God as idolatry, surely. But what, when we remember that the attribute of truth what that is in terms of who God is and who we are and who we are in relation to him. That's the first thing for us to see here tonight. Point number one, a God of truth. A God of truth. You crack open any systematic theology book and in the chapters on God and his attributes, one of those will surely be truth. Whether it's a whole chapter, whether it's a section of a chapter. Our shorter catechism, number four, puts it this way. God is a spirit infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. All over the scriptures, God is described as being a God of truth. Exodus 34, verse 6, God passing by in front of Moses. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. The song of Moses, Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. In the Old Testament, the word to describe his faithfulness the verb means to be firm or sure. The Hebrew word there is aman. Yes, from which we get that famous word to end our prayers. Amen. In the New Testament, when Jesus speaks and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, or verily, verily, I say to you, the Greek word standing behind that is amen, amen, from which we get amen. Truth, verity, firm, steadfast, faithful. To verbify the word amen is how God's faithfulness is described in the Hebrew language in the Old Testament. And of course, our Lord Jesus himself famously in John 14, 6, telling his disciples, I am. And of course, he's deliberately invoking the divine language and self-identification of God from Exodus 3 in the burning bush there. I am the way, the truth, and the life. God is a God of truth. You shall not bear false witness, is what the Ninth Commandment says. My kids were asking me the other day what that means, because the, the phrasing sounds a little strange, a little bit archaic. Witness. Think of a witness to a, a crime or any situation. You're in a courtroom, you tell your story, and the witness stand. 
you bear witness to an event. That means you see something, you behold something, and if you give an account of it, if you give an, a, a telling of it or a retelling of it, you need to give a factual account, a true telling, not a false one. Do not bear false witness. Tell the truth. Do not lie. And as we thought about back in the sixth commandment, mankind, male and female, are made in his image, God's image, in his likeness, reflecting him, bearing resemblance to him in a mortal, creaturely, derivative fashion. Again, shorter catechism, this time number 10. God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. So truth, being a subset of righteousness and holiness, in a state of truth is how God created us originally. It is one of his communicable attributes. He is a God of truth, and he created us to be a people of truth, bearing his image, reflecting him. And so when you turn to Romans 1, as we did earlier, and we read the catalog there of sins and heinous actions, the heinous actions of humans that Paul recites for all the idolatry, for all the lusts and sexual perversions that he has in view. Perhaps the most damning, the sin which undergirds it all is what he says there in verses 18 and 25. That men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That, that ought to shock us like a thunderclap. The, the unthinkable. The God of truth created a people endowed with truth, and they saw fit to exchange the truth of God for a lie. Right? We were just at Chick-fil-A the other day, our family, traveling home from the Thanksgiving holiday. And you know, if you get the kids' meals, and they give that little toy, that little prize in the kids' meal, you can go up to the counter and swap it out for a, an ice cream dessert. And that's what my kids love to do. Rather than take the toy home, let's get a free ice cream while we're here. As casually as we might do that at the Chick-fil-A counter, this is what mankind did. I've got this truth. Give me that instead. Swap it out for a lie. I'd rather have that. And so you see Paul's description of nearly every one of the Ten Commandments being broken there in Romans chapter 1. You heard the list? Idolatry. Murder, strife, deceit, disobedient to parents, haters of God, covetousness, shameful acts of physical relations, all the Decalogue violated and undergirding it all is the fact that they embraced a lie. Perhaps truth and the ninth commandment are more fundamental in the economy of sin and ethics and holiness than we first realized. Maybe Maybe truth-telling isn't worth a shrug in comparison to murder or idolatry, as we might be first tempted to think. And of course, at one level, that shouldn't surprise us. False witness has been a problem from the very beginning, hasn't it? And that brings us to our second point. First, a God of truth, but then secondly, there's a father of lies. A father of lies. Back in Genesis 3, the first sin recorded in Holy Scripture is Satan's lie. People might say, well, no, Eve's is the first sin, because in Genesis 3, verse 3, she added to God's word, and she added that clause to God's instruction, neither shall you touch it. And God never said that in Genesis 2. Yeah. But the verse before, what does Satan do? The devil 
questioned the truthfulness of God. Did God really say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He sowed doubt. He insinuated something false about God's character. He twisted the truthfulness of God's instruction so that it sounded similar in Eve's hearing, but not quite. He prejudiced the truth. Or as our larger catechism says in its exposition of the ninth commandment, he perverted it to a wrong meaning, misconstruing its intentions, insinuating as he did. And so then Eve spoke. And then Satan comes back. So first Satan gives an insinuation. Eve gives a rejoinder. But it's not quite correct, the thing that she says. And then Satan comes back and he just outright lies that time. You will not surely die, says Satan. You will be like God. And our first parents bought the lie. And when God confronts them, now now the gateway has been opened for even more deception and, and obfuscation and blame shifting. God confronts them. What does Adam say? The woman whom you gave me, she gave it to me to eat and I ate. What's he doing? I'm the victim here, Lord. That's what he's saying. It's her fault. Really, actually, it's your fault, God. The woman whom you gave me, you gave her to me, Lord. I wouldn't be in this mess if it weren't for her. I'm, I'm not the culpable one here. I'm the victim. Trying to get himself off the hook. Blame shifting. Self-justifying. Bearing false witness trying to do so. Sounds awfully familiar. Man and woman created in the image of God, meant to reflect and imitate him. Now, now, created to imitate and reflect God, now they have come to reflect, morally at least, the one whom the Lord Jesus calls in John 8, verse 44, a liar and the father of lies. One commentator points out that in Romans 3, verse 14, when the Apostle Paul describes human depravity and pervasive sin, he says regarding all people, the venom of of asps is under their lips. An asp is a kind of snake, which is to say for Paul, the poison of the serpent comes from our mouths now too. Meant to reflect God's image, now we're reflecting the image of the father of lies. The sad reality is that because of the fall, this side of Eden, human beings are not reliable truth-tellers. That's why there are so many provisions in Old Testament law about needing two or more witnesses to verify an incident. Our inability to be truthful is deeply rooted in sin that rots us at our core. It's not just a mere superficial inconvenience. Matthew 12, verse 34 and following. Remember Jesus' words? How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Or Matthew 15, verses 18 through 20. Again, the Lord Jesus, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, Sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. See, those tendencies, the white lie, the exaggeration, the gossip, 
the, the grasping at excuses so that we can self-justify, the, the blame-shifting, indulging in the gossip to tear down that other person, usually in hopes of making ourselves look better, the flattering compliments toward that other person, really just in the interest of self-service so that he or she will think better of me. These things, according to Jesus and according to our larger catechism, as the catechism helps us understand, are all in the purview of the ninth commandment. They are sins that we commit with our tongue, but they are rooted in the meditations of our hearts. Sins of the tongue, our sins of speech, our problems at our core. And so, I'd like us to explore this a bit using three metaphors of the tongue, which James, the brother of Jesus, uses in his epistle. We read from that passage earlier in James 3. Truth-telling is a thing of speech, and the tongue in Scripture is often equated with speech since it is the instrument of our speech, the instrument of our communication, and the basis of so many of our interpersonal relations. The sins of the tongue are sins against the ninth commandment. A few other commentaries that I consulted took this approach, and so I thought it was useful for us as well. So, first, a God of truth... Then secondly, the father of lies. And then the third thing, three metaphors that James uses. Three metaphors. He says the tongue is a forest fire, a wild animal, and a deadly poison. So first of all, James says the tongue is a forest fire. James 3, verses 5 and 6. The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. How often we speak a word thoughtlessly, friends, passing along that little bit of gossip, thinking nothing about it. How many of the wildfires that have been raging out west for the past several years burning thousands and thousands of acres of forest, and one of them is thought to have, at least one, probably more, one of them is thought to have been started by a still-lit cigarette butt, just thrown out from the car, onto the dry grass, in the peak of drought season, and that's all it took. A spark from that cigarette, and the summer breeze kicks up, and the grass and dry leaves, and soon acres of forest, a blaze in destruction. One careless word, One spiteful comment. I heard it from so-and-so, so so I figured it was reliable. The tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness, James says, and its unchecked evil can soon envelop whole lives. Fire set on by the malice of hell itself. The malice of hell itself. This quote has been variously attributed to Mark Twain and Winston Churchill and even Charles Spurgeon, but no one really knows who said it first. But it's a proverb that rings true, I think. A lie is halfway around the world before the truth has even got its boots on. Joachim Duma comments, Perhaps the one spreading the gossip is not lying, but he or she is being untruthful. Saying things that are true, but in the context of slander, is deceitful. The neighbor's mistakes, faults, and shortcomings are discussed in minute detail. People realize this kind of chatter gets them an attentive audience. For it is a universal phenomenon that we would rather hear something bad about our neighbor than something good. 
And something dirty always sticks long after the conversation has died. As Martin Luther put it in his large catechism, reputation is something quickly stolen, but not quickly returned. Close quote. The tongue is a forest fire. Second metaphor, the tongue is a wild animal. James 3, verses 7 and 8. Every kind of beast and bird and reptile, sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. There's a story in Newsweek magazine from a couple years ago. A circus trainer, Maxim Orlov, in Russia, he works with several supposedly trained lions with the Ural Traveling Circus. Orlov led two lionesses into the main circus ring in front of the audience, and as he approached the side of the ring, one of the lions pounced, latched onto his leg, bringing him to the ground. Now, Orlov managed to stand and used two batons to ward the lions away. However, one lion managed to pin him down as the crowd shrieked in horror. Now, Orlov managed to escape with his life, but not without first sustaining major arm and leg wounds requiring immediate hospital treatment. Orlov said, Cases such as that today are very rare, but animals are animals. Apparently you can't really tame a lion, you only think you can. So too with the tongue. We think ourselves wise and circumspect, but given the right circumstances, we spread that rumor, we jump to conclusions, Someone says that phrase, that, that one coworker or that family member that knows just which buttons to push and how to get under our skin. And mm, you can feel your blood start to boil and you can feel your face start to turn red. And out of the mouth comes the spite and the vitriol and the hateful refutes and retorts. The lioness has been provoked and sprung upon us, fangs born, claws outstretched, and we break the ninth commandment. The tongue is a wild animal. A forest fire, a wild animal. And then the third metaphor, James says in James 3.8, it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. I know a man years ago, he was out for a walk in the woods. It was early autumn. Right? Leaves are falling. There's a pleasant crunch on the trail beneath his boots when suddenly he feels it. The bite. The strike of a venomous snake which he didn't see and to which he got too close. So it bites he falls to the ground in pain, scaring the snake off. It slithers off into the bushes. He said that he could feel a numbing sensation start to spread from his foot up his leg and into his side around his ribcage. Poison in his veins, apparently, the doctors found out later, spreading through his whole body. Now, thankfully, with his cell phone on him, he called for medical help. He's able to be rescued, though in the end, his foot had to be amputated. One man says... Like poison from the serpent's bite, bearing false witness has tracked through our veins, pervaded our system, penetrated our hearts, and unless the antidote can be found, it will kill us in the end. Close quote. Turns out that telling a lie, being less than truthful, is not this minor socially acceptable flaw that we too often think it is. According to Holy Scripture, it is a deadly poison that festers in our hearts. An untamable, man-killing creature. A fire that kills. So what can be done? And this brings us to our fourth and final point. 
that we must flee to Christ Jesus, the one who is the Lord, the one who is full of grace and truth. He is, Revelation 1, verse 5, the faithful and true witness. The one who came from the Father, John says marvelously in his prologue, full of grace and truth. And just like the Lord of life is the hope for all kinds of sixth commandment breakers, so too the Lord of truth is hope for all kinds of ninth commandment breakers. Remember in Mark 14, that sham of a trial held for Jesus at the home of the high priest? Now here, in, in that instance, here is, there is perhaps the most supreme, egregious, and horrific example of mortal beings exchanging the truth of God for a lie. There he is, Jesus. Truth itself. He who is truth. He who is the way, the truth, and the life. And there he is sitting there being maligned by false witness after false witness speaking lies against him. And eventually Caiaphas condemns him as a blasphemer. The supreme title at the, for the most heinous of the bearers of false witness and speakers of evil. Blasphemer. The God of truth. The God of truth incarnate, maliciously accused, wrongly maligned, falsely condemned. In the grossest miscarriage of justice ever known. Judged as a blasphemer and subsequently put to death on account of it. The God full of grace and truth. The only one who had never, ever, ever bore false witness. Condemned as a liar. And at Calvary, dying in the stead of all kinds of ninth commandment breakers, bearing our sin, bearing our shame, bearing the weight of the curse on account of our lying tongues. There he is, truth enfleshed, paying the price for my dishonesty and deception. And in him and in him alone, in his vicarious atoning death and glorious triumphant resurrection, there is hope. The Son of God, full of grace and truth, did not stay dead, but is risen and reigning even now, interceding for sinners, for his people. And so we must look to him, flee to him, cast ourselves upon him and his mercy, for he is the one, the only one, who can douse these hell-fueled lying tongues of fire. He is the one that can tame that predatory beast of sin that's waiting to pounce upon us. He is the one who can stop the flow of that deadly, venomous sin coursing through our souls. It is Jesus Christ. He can make you clean. He can make you whole. He can pardon your sin, your most vile sin, and give you the new birth and give you new life now and forever. And in closing, part of the way he does that, brothers and sisters, part of the way he does that is by ushering us into his body, his bride, the church. He gives us one another. Remember what Paul said back in Ephesians 4, verse 25, talking about how we must live as these new ransomed, redeemed people? Our new life in Christ should look like this, in part. Ephesians 4, 25. Having put away falsehood, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. There's that classic Pauline principle, that strategy, the put off and put on. Put off sin. Put off falsehood. Put it away. And instead, put on Christ. Practice truth. Be a people of truth because you have been saved and because you serve the God of truth. Why? Paul gives the motive. For 
We are members of one another. God brings us into fellowship with one another, a body of mutual accountability and mutual encouragement. And like Adam and Eve in the beginning, created in truth to be a people of truth in fellowship with one another and with God, the Lord has begun to remake that society even now in his church, a people of truth as it ought to have been in creation. Now it is at the beginning of God's new creation. We owe truth to one another as image bearers of the God of truth. We are called to speak truth and in doing so, to rightly care for one another. In in this new society that Christ is fashioning, his church, we are not atomized units in isolation from one another. But in redemption, we have been brought together, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, into this structure. Being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We belong to one another. And so it's in these bonds of love and fellowship, brothers and sisters, that we are further forged and refined. And as a people of grace and as a people of the gospel, we gather as the church, as Paul says in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, we gather so that we may put away falsehood and so that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly and that we would teach and admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Friends, as we cling to Christ, the God full of grace and truth, and as we dwell long with his church, whom he is remaking into a people of truth, there we might find in Christ rest and pardon and forgiveness and grace. And in his church we might find fellow soldiers to help us in the fight, to put away falsehood, and to become a truth-loving and truth-speaking people. Ultimately, that we might be the greatest reversal of liars and blasphemers, but that we might actually be agents of the good news, of gospel grace, in a world which so desperately needs it. In Christ, it is this to which the ninth commandment ultimately calls us, to bear true witness to the greatest truth and the greatest news of all, the good news of Jesus Christ. Praise God for it. And praise God for the ministry of the ninth commandment to us tonight. Let's all pray. Truly, Lord, we do praise you for your word. And we ask you, O Savior, you who are the way, the truth, and the life, that we would be a society both of truth tellers and gospel speakers to the glory of your great name. Seal your word to our hearts tonight and for all eternity. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.